Beloved, hear God's word to us as he calls us to worship from Hosea chapter 11. This is the first four verses. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with, ba- with the bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. Beloved, it is God's kindness and his love that actually brings us to see our sin and to confess our sin. And what God does is he shows us our sin That we might bring it, we might acknowledge it, we might confess it, and that we might see that he is a God who delights when his children come to him and confess and acknowledge their sin and brokenness because he delights to show us his grace to us through the blood of Jesus. So let's confess together this morning. The confession is in your order of worship. Uh, We're going to say this out loud together, and I would encourage you to do that even at home. So let's confess together this morning. Triune God, your love predates the creation of the world and continues in the life to come. You formed us in your image. As your children, we were made to reflect your glory, beauty, and truth. But that was not enough for us. We wanted something other than you. We wanted our own way. We build our lives by what we believe to be right in our own eyes. We confess this self-sufficiency produces nervousness and isolation. We struggle to trust that you are in control. But you refuse to leave us to ourselves. In grace, you pursue us and confront our sin. Your grace not only convinces us of our self-sufficiency, it also brings us into a life defined by the cross and empty tomb. Jesus, you went to the cross to crucify our rebellious lives. Your empty tomb brings new life with you and your church. Holy Spirit, continue to bring us to the cross in the empty tomb. Convince us that life with Christ is far better than life through our own eyes. Complete the work you have started. All is grace. Amen. Now let's take a few moments to quietly come before your God and more particularly and specifically confess and acknowledge your sin to him and see his grace to you in Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy, which you have given to us fully and finally in the person and work of your Son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. 
Beloved, God wants to assure you of his grace to you in Jesus. Assure you of his forgiveness that was purchased on the cross. These words are ancient words that have been uh, words that God has given to his people throughout the centuries. That he is a God who is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. As high as the heavens are above the earth and as far as the east is from the west, so far does our God remove our sin from us in Jesus. We have a gracious and forgiving God, beloved. Thanks be to our God. And now let us uh, declare our faith together about what we believe about this God who leads us with cords of kindness and bands of love. And we're using the Nicene Creed. And so I will ask the question of what we believe and then we will say the Nicene Creed together. Beloved of Christ, what is it that you believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. Beloved, our God is a God who does lead us in his kindness and in his love. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. I'm glad that we can together look at God's Word. So if you would, you can see printed in your uh, bulletin there that we distributed through the church-wide email. We're going to look together to, at this morning at Judges chapter 2 through chapter 3, verse 6. Uh, I'm going to read to you chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, and then uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into this passage in this particular book. So if you'd like to, please follow along. This is God's Word for you. It's God's Word for me. You can, we can bank our entire lives on this. So listen to this. Judges chapter 2, verse 18 and 19. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word that in the midst of living in very interesting circumstances, you are unhindered in anything that you want to do. 
Your purposes will never be thwarted. Your plans do not change. You plan good things for your people. And we thank you that we can gather this morning to confess, to hear, to be reminded of your plans for us in Christ. Holy Spirit, act on us that we might know Christ, that we might see him from this passage and therefore understand ourselves better. Again, we pray all of this for your glory, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. As we look this morning in the book of Judges, if you're like me, you probably haven't heard too many sermon series through the book of Judges. It's a great book. It's a fascinating book. But just in case you haven't heard anything about the Judges and the book of Judges, then I want to take a few moments and just give a framework so we understand this book and how it fits into all that God is doing. If you're just joining us for the first time, we are spending this year as a congregation working our way through the story of the Bible. So this morning we land in Judges. So here here is some preliminary stuff about Judges. Preliminary stuff about Judges. Judges covers the time of history between the death of Joshua and the beginning of the monarchy, the beginning of the king. So in that period of time in history, that's what this book is about. This book also should make us think about something in particular. Whenever you hear the word Judges, you don't have to think about a courtroom and, and a black robe. When you hear the word judges, you should think about the idea of rescuer. The judges were really the rescuers that God raised up to save his people. Judges is a book that's all about sin and grace. When you read through the book of Judges, you'll realize in ever clearer ways that sin is very, very contagious. Sin gets worse and worse and worse, but... This book is not so much about sin as it is about grace, that the grace of God is actually more powerful than sin. It doesn't matter how dark things get, and things get really dark in this book, God's grace is greater. God's grace is stronger. It is more powerful than sin. Sin is real, but it never gets the last word. The grace of God is more powerful and significant. If you want to know what a summary of this entire book is, you can look at the last verse of the last chapter. Chapter 21, verse 25 gives us a summary of the entire book. There was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Finally, this chapter that we're looking at today, chapter 2, into the first part of chapter 3, is a summary of the whole book as well. So we not only have a summary verse at the end, we also have this chapter to help us understand uh, a snapshot of the entire book. So let's dive in. So what I hope that you see from this chapter today is that this chapter is showing us two things. It's showing us how our hearts work, and it is showing us what God is doing. Those are the two things that this chapter is showing. After we look at that, we'll think about one idea together. So let's dive in. Let's think about these two ideas. This chapter shows us how our hearts work. So remember that in the story, God's people have just crossed the dry riverbed of the Jordan. We looked at that last week in the book of Joshua. And now here they are in the land that has been promised to them. And they are supposed to drive out all the idols. They are supposed to serve God in this land. And in the midst of that, we find in this chapter 
a lot of data that describes what's going on with God's people. Let me give you some examples. If you look in verse 2, it says that God's people covenanted with the people in Cana. If you look at verse 10, it tells you that the next generation after Joshua, they didn't know God. If you look at verse 12, it tells you that God's people provoked him. Our forefathers in the faith provoked God. If you look at verse 13, it says that God's people began to worship Baal and the Ashtoreths. If you look in verse 15, you find out that God's people, excuse me, verse 17, God's people had whored themselves out after other gods. Verse 18, they were uh, groaning out to God, crying out to God. And verse 19, they were stubborn. Now, when you think about all that data, remember, God isn't primarily concerned about outward conformity. It's, it's not as though that life with God has ever been this way. If you outwardly do the right thing, God will accept you. It's never been this way. That if you do the right thing outwardly, you can keep your relationship with God. God has never, in the story of the scriptures, God has never said, look, if you just do all the right things, you will merit my love. If you just obey in everything I've said outwardly, then you will be with me forever. God has never, ever prioritized outward conformity. He has always been after the heart. And that means when we read those phrases, we need to think about what they're telling us about the heart because God cares about our hearts. So let's think about these phrases and what they're telling us about the heart. When you think about the fact that God's people in verse 10 didn't know God in the next generation, think about it. The generation after Joshua knew a lot about God they heard all the stories from their parents and their aunts and uncles and their grandparents and their neighbors. They heard all kinds of stories about God. They also were able to go see the stone monument that we talked about last week that we find in Joshua. They could see the monument. They could understand the stories. They knew a lot about God. But when the text says they didn't know God, what it meant is that what they knew about God had no practical significance. It meant that what they knew about God didn't carry any weight in their decision-making and in their everyday lives. They knew a lot about God, but their hearts were far from him. When we read about God's people in verse 2, covenanting with the idols and the people of the land, you see, that's telling us something else. It's telling us that what was going on in their heart is that they decided that they would fit the gods of this new region in with their God. It meant that they would assimilate their belief system. It meant that they would still follow God, but they would just add something on top of what they knew about the God of the Scriptures. They would fit other practices in to what God says about life. Even to the point in which they would, as verse 13 says, worship Baal and Ashtoreth. That gives us a very clear idea about what was going on in the hearts of God's people. 
You see, Baal was and Ashtoreth were kind of like male and female. They were husband and wife. They were gods that uh, if you obeyed them properly, they would send rain and a plentiful harvest. And so God's people start thinking, you know what? We think that God is real and he's done some great things. But what we really need every day is to make sure we have enough rain so that our crops will grow, so that we'll have harvests. So let's continue to follow our God, but add something to that. And let's honor these other gods, Baal and Ashtoreth, and do what they want so that we can receive an abundant harvest. Now you see what's happening in the hearts of God's people is this. We can understand easily the idea that we wanted to serve God plus something else. But what's subtly happening is this. God's people are moving from believing in God and living by faith to bargaining. And to bring that idea into their lives with God. Thinking, you know, I can bargain my way into a better existence. Now, let's bring this into our modern day. Let's bring this into our time and our place. Because idols are everywhere. You know, in our day and age, idolatry can look a lot like this. We place a high value on our work, our work ethic, our paycheck, And the older we get, it seems like we have more and more of a temptation to think that we're always right. And whenever we place a high value, too high a value on our work, our job, our career, our work ethic, how hard we're willing to work, what that means in terms of a paycheck, and the fact that we're looked up to more and more and think that we're always right, when we find our identity in those things, When we find our value in those things, when we find our security in those things, our work, our work ethic, what we produce and what it pays and being right, when we find our security in those, it means that those things are our idols. It means that we might be able to answer a spiritual test in written form about things about God in the Bible, But it means we are living our lives as if, yeah, we love God, but we also want to find our identity and value and worth and security in what we do and in what we can get and what other people think of us. And the approval that they give us becomes many times ultimate. Many times it becomes the very thing that we're actually living for on a regular basis. You see, we struggle with idols too. I have idols of my work and the approval of people. This is something that is very, hits home very deeply. As I was reading for this particular passage and trying to understand it, I read a particular scholar that said, if you're interested in wanting to think about the idols in your own life, think about these two questions. So last week I gave you four questions in the churchwide email that John Paul and I worked out. This week I didn't put it in the email because I wanted to give them to you right here. So if you want to think about identifying the idols in your own life, here are two questions. These aren't original to me. The first question is this. Are you willing to do whatever God says 
in every area of life? Are you willing to do what God says in every area of life, of your life? Are you willing to do what God says about your family? Are you willing to do what God says about your singleness? Are you willing to do what God says with your career? Are you willing to do what God says with your resources? Are you willing to do what God says with your desires? Are you willing to do what God says with your time? Because if you're willing to do what God says in some of those areas but not others, then you see that exposes that our hearts are attached to something else that's telling us what to do or what not to do compared to God and how to think about those things. Someone is the ultimate source of how to think about each of those areas other than the God of the Bible. Here's the second question. Are you willing to receive whatever God sends in all of those areas? Are you willing to receive what God sends in all of those areas? Are you willing to receive what God sends with your career? Are you willing to receive what God sends with your relationships in your life? Are you willing to receive what God sends regarding your future? You see, if we only want to follow God to get a specific desired result from a particular area of life, then we're really only using God to get a result that we want. That means that we're not really honoring the God of the Scriptures and receiving everything from Him. It means that we're trying to form and shape the God of the Scriptures after our own likeness and after our own desires. You see, we all struggle with idolatry. But this chapter is not only showing us the way that our heart works, this chapter is also showing us what God is doing. This chapter is absolutely showing us in almost every verse what God is doing. Here are several things that God's doing in this chapter. Number one, he is pursuing. You can't read this chapter without knowing that God is speaking to us. It begins with the angel of the Lord traveling from Gilgal to Boshim. And there he is speaking and talking about what's going on with his people. All the phrases and the data points that I mentioned to you earlier about making covenant with other folks in verse 2. And that we don't know God, verse 10, and provoking God and worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth. All those other things, being stubborn. Like all, we get all of that from God. The God is pursuing. And we know God's pursuing because he's talking to us. He's saying, this is what I see, and this is what I observe, and this is what I know. He's pursuing you and pursuing me through his word. He's saying, I see what's going on in your life, and I see that that's traced back to your heart, and I'm concerned about your heart, so I want to talk to you about that. So what God's doing is that he is pursuing his people. Secondly, he is angry and responsive. If you look around verse 18 or 20, you'll find out that God was provoked with anger because of what God's people were doing. God was angry at how his people were living. He was angry at what was going on inside of our hearts, inside of their hearts. And let me tell you, anger is an expression of love. Anger is an expression of love. 
if one of my children were to get involved in a horrific drug problem, and I were to see what was going on in their lives, and if I were to look at what was going on and say, oh, well, guess that's just the way it is, that wouldn't be very loving at all. But if I got angry at what those drugs were doing to my child and how they were destroying their life and what was going on with their life because of that, that's an expression of love. I love my children and I don't want them to do anything that would destroy their life. And when God looked at his people, he can see that his people, their lives are being destroyed. And he addresses it. He doesn't stop. He even has pity on them, as another verse says. You see, God was moved with compassion. He cared about his people. He speaks to them. He addresses their lives and what's going on. He even hears their groanings, which means he could tell that their heart, the hearts of his people were falling apart, crumbling. And he cared. You see, he decided to speak to them and pursue them. What that means is that God loves us desperately enough to speak into our lives. Another thing that we see in this chapter about God is this. God is testing and training. If you look at verse 22 of chapter 2, you'll find that God says that these idols are going to stay And these people are going to stay to test my people. And if you look at the first part of chapter 3, you find out that God also says that they remain so that his people can be trained for war. Well, what that means is this. What that means is things are left in our lives because God wants us to take the test. He wants us to every day when we make decisions, think about what's going on and see if our lives are align with what he wants from our lives. In other words, we get to take this test all the time. We have the opportunity for idols of our heart, the idols of our hearts to be exposed all the time. And when we take the test and we realize that we don't measure up to what God desires for us, what that means is we have to have this posture of constantly being willing to admit that we need God. We have this opportunity to constantly admit that we're broken and in new ways we realize our brokenness. But God also does this not only to tell us to take the test, but he's also saying, are you willing to be trained? In the first part of chapter 3, God says that these remain so that his people can be trained on how to go to war and how to go to battle. Let me tell you, I love thinking about this this week. Because oftentimes in my life, if it's anything like yours, there are things that I struggle with in my life and I think to myself, you know, God, why don't you just take this away? Why don't you just take this off of me? You know that I struggle in this area and in that. Just, just take it off. Take the weight. Take the burden. And God does. But there are other things that he doesn't remove like that. They remain. And when I read this and thought about the idea that This would remain to train his people in how to enter into warfare and how to go to battle. It made me think about the rest of this book. 
When you read the rest of this book, there's lots of battles. It's very violent, and I really enjoyed reading it. But when you read through this book, what you find is that God's people are usually outnumbered and usually have the most ridiculous of weapons. Like they have weapons that we might call like lava lamps and, and the strategies of walking around buildings and places and blowing trumpets. God's people are always outnumbered and they hardly ever have any threatening weapons. And God is training his people on how to battle and how to go to war. And we go to war by using God's weapons. We go to war by following what God says. We go to war by waiting for his timing and waiting for his results in his way. You see, this means that God oftentimes leads things in our lives, not just to test us so that we understand that oftentimes we're pursuing something different than what he wants for us. He leaves these things in our lives to train us to be more dependent upon him. Well, this chapter is showing us those two things. And now one idea. One idea. The idea is longing. When you read through this chapter, you can see very clearly that God's people have a deep, deep longing to be self-sufficient and to serve self. You realize that this is a problem that we have had almost since the beginning. Not the beginning, but almost the beginning. We talked about this in Genesis 3. When we rebelled against God, that rebellion remains. And that means that because we rebelled against God in the garden, that we have a tendency, a proclivity, a desire, a longing to serve self, to be self-sufficient, self-made, self-reliant. And there's only one thing that can change our longings. Only one thing. Something has to come from the outside into us in order to change us. God here in this chapter comes from the outside and speaks to his people. His word goes forth and says, this is what I see. This is what is going on in your heart. And he's changing the desires and the longings of his people's heart. The only thing that will change us is something from the outside. And beloved, we see this most clearly in Jesus. Because you see, the final word that God says is not here in Judges 2. The final word is in the coming of Christ. The one that left heaven to come to this earth to live and die, conquer death, and be raised from the dead. That, Jesus, is the final word. And it comes to us from the outside. It's the only thing that gets us out of ourselves and into something else. It's the only thing that gets us out of ourselves and into Christ and who he is. And that means that through the cross, what we see is not only our responsibility, but we also see God's unconditional love. Beloved, every time we think about the cross, we have to remember that it was our sin that held him there. And that God's love has to be unconditional because there's nothing that we have done to ever earn God's favor. What we have done is rebelled 
and broken our relationship with God. But through the cross, we see we're responsible and yet loved and forgiven unconditionally. Because of the cross, we can take our responsibility seriously. Because of the cross and the empty tomb, we can take our responsibility seriously to live our lives with God day by day. And in Jesus, this pattern that occurs over and over and over in Judges that we read about in verse 18 and 19, that when God raised up a rescuer, God's people were saved out of oppression when that rescuer died, they went back into our old habits. Doesn't that sound like our lives? Up and down. In Jesus, this pattern and this cycle that we see over and over is fully and finally and ultimately it has ended. And that means that we can live our lives each day in hope. Because of what Christ has done, we not only understand responsibility and unconditional love, we not only understand responsibility and following God day by day, we can do that in hope because of what Christ has done. We have hope that we can change and hope in our glorious future with him. Beloved, we are loved in Christ. Let's repent and believe and trust him afresh. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the final word of God that comes from the outside into us to get us out of ourselves and into you. Would you help us to live with hope? Would you help us to think about our lives and be honest about the idols that are there and bring those idols to the cross? Bring those idols to the empty tomb. Holy Spirit, continue to work in us to make us more like the Savior. We pray in his name, and we pray for your glory to redound through us forever and ever. Amen. As you go about the rest of your afternoon and try to figure out work and family life and schedules and rhythms and all that sort of thing, I know it's difficult, but hang in there. We look forward to the day when we can get together again and worship together. Hope we can take communion the first Sunday that we're back. Really look forward to that. But don't panic. Stay the course, know that God's blessing is upon you, and no matter what circumstances are going on, they cannot stop God from blessing his people because of what Jesus has done. So beloved, hear this and try to live as if you actually believe it's true this week. No matter what goes on, hear your blessing that you have from God because of Christ. The Lord your God is going to bless you, and he is also going to keep you. This week, his smile is upon you, and he is going to be gracious to you. And in the age to come forever and ever and ever, even today, his presence is with you. And one day, he will make all things new and bring shalom. There will be peace. It's true because our Christ is alive. Amen. Go in his peace.